0: and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message.
1: It's good to see you all. Hak samak, hak sukot samak to all of you. I want to share some words with you or some thoughts about Sukkot. This is a joyous time. And I think it's highlighted somewhat by the fact that we, uh, just a few days before, we were in Yom Kippur. That rhymed, didn't it? Just a few days before we were in Yom Kippur. (laughs) And I'm sure about that. But as we gather here tonight in Oklahoma City, really at this time, we've started a new day according to the, uh, the biblical calendar, Hebrew calendar. But I I realized as I was thinking about Sukkot and what a joyous time it is, that is a characteristic of Sukkot, is the joy and rejoicing. That across the globe right now, and this is by no means an exaggeration, but across, across the globe right now, there are people either already celebrating Sukkot and have entered into the first day of Sukkot, or they're in preparation to celebrate Sukkot. It is very much a, an important an important feast day. And when we think about Sukkot, we also link that with the other two important feast days. Not that all of them are unimportant, they're not, but the, the three major ones would be Pesach or Hagamatzot, Shavuot, often called Pentecost, and Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacle. And these three major feasts are called in the Hebrew language Shlosh, Regalim. Now, we read about them in Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 17, where it says, three times in the year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. And then it goes on and describes those three times. Those are the three that I mentioned, which would be, uh, we call them in English, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Tabernacles in Hebrew, the Hebrew word is Sukkot, Tabernacles. We also read much more about these feasts, but this one in particular is important. Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning with verse 16 and also verse 17. it again, it repeats that three times a year. It says, three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. That's later defined as Jerusalem in the Bible. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we call that Hagamatzot, the Passover season, in the Feast of Weeks, the way to say weeks in Hebrew is Shavuot, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, again, not to overemphasize, but Tabernacles in Hebrew is Sukkot. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So these festivals, I'm going to use the term festivals, feast days, They were times of pilgrimage, as we read in just these two verses, and there are other places that exemplify this. Uh, They were to appear in Jerusalem, the place where the Lord had set his name, and they were to appear there at least at these three times, and the minimum family grouping would be just the male representative of the family. Of course, even as many of us are family-oriented now, in our generation, there was family orientation back then, and whole families went up, and it was quite a celebration. But they, the, they were to present offerings before the Lord, and I'm reminded of what we're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So this whole idea of korban, as it's called in Hebrew, of sacrifice really permeates our thinking. When we think about Yeshua laying down his life, Yeshua was a korban. He was a sacrifice for us. He laid down his life willingly for us. And when I use the name Yeshua, I'm referring to Jesus. And then also, as these passages of scriptures show us, it's very important for us that we present ourselves to the Lord, in, in essence, like a living sacrifice. But curiously, the term that I used once already in my message, the term shlosh regalim, also occurs in other places in the scripture, but particularly in this one place And I'm going to just read the passage of scripture to you and see if you can figure out what the story is involved with this passage of scripture. This word again, these two words, shlosh regalim, occurs in the Torah in another place. And here's the passage of scripture. I'll read it in English. And my guess is that everyone here, when you realize which story this is taken from, raise your hand, all right? So I can see, we really get this. How sharp are we tonight with our Torah understanding? Oh, we got somebody before I said it. <laughs> but here, here's the clue. See if you can figure out the narrative, the story. It's from the Torah, where the words shlosh regalim occur, outside of the feast. Here it is. Ready? Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. <laughs> and the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these Shlos Regalim these three times? Now, where are we talking about? How many got it now? we're talking about the story of Balaam and the donkey. Now this this, in this case, in the English, Shlosh Regalim is translated as three times. Did you notice it? What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam, where this other term, where that term is used in, in uh, the term Shlosh Regalim in Numbers 22, uh, that whole story, Balaam, if you recall, had been commissioned by Balak, Balak, to speak curses upon Israel and to speak against Israel. And as it turned out, Balaam or Balaam, Balaam could not speak curses, only blessings to Israel. And during Sukkot, we acknowledge the blessings, the blessings that God has given to us in our lives. Has the Lord blessed you this past year? I'm sure that means that at times it's been a difficult time. I'm sure at times you've had struggles, Uh, who hasn't? But when we start to think about it, the Lord has blessed us greatly. And another way to say is what the enemy has meant for evil, God has turned it for good. Even as Balaam was not able to curse Israel at that time, God is lavishing blessings upon us. God is good to us. Now, during Sukkot, we do acknowledge the blessings of the Lord. As some of us were out there in the sukkah on our property there, and I was standing underneath the sukkah and just looking out from it and realizing how good is the Lord? How merciful is the Lord? How kind is the Lord? How generous is the Lord to us, to his people? Yes, there are struggles, and I think we all could sign up for that at times. But as, for, as being messianic believers, believers, believers in Messiah Yeshua, we thank him for so great a salvation that we have. Amen. So great a deliverance he's given unto us through Yeshua, through Jesus' his holy son. It's tremendous. And we also thank him for the good plans that he has for our lives. Are you thankful that God has good purpose for you this evening on this Sukkot as we begin Sukkot? And when we think about the blessings that he lavishes upon us, he has good plans for you. Please take away with you tonight that idea that he has good plans for you. His purposes are good. And even as we read in the Torah concerning the Feast of Sukkot that it was a time to present offerings before the Lord and the the parallel passage in Romans 12, verse 1, to present ourselves to the Lord. I think Sukkot is a great time after Yom Kippur and the fasting and all the 10 days of all, it is a great time for us to renew a personal commitment to the Lord God of Israel through his son Yeshua the Messiah. And it is a great time for us to commit to be led by the Holy Spirit during this year. How many of you have that as a goal? You want to be led of the Holy Spirit. I do. Since Sukkot is also, and really majorly, it's a time of the autumn harvest, Therefore, it's a time of rejoicing. Some of you grew up on farms, some of you grew up in an agricultural setting, and you know that when harvest time came, and you began to bring in that harvest, you were excited, you were happy. It meant many things. One was provision. It also meant that uh, some of your hard labor was coming to literal fruition as you received that harvest. And it was a time of rejoicing, another term to describe Sukkot is zaman simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. There's community rejoicing, simchatenu, our rejoicing at Sukkot. But what was Sukkot like during the time of Yeshua in the first century? There are some hints about it in some passage of scripture, which we will hear during this coming week, God willing, as we celebrate Sukkot, we'll hear more about the literal verses that deal with Sukkot in the book of John and other places. But what was Sukkot like in the first century when Yeshua himself went up to Jerusalem? Well, we do have some references to what it was actually like. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus How many of you have heard of Josephus, by the way? Good. Josephus wrote many things. And when I think about the ancient writers, how they did all that writing, they did all that writing without a computer, without a word processor. They did all that. with It's amazing. Thick volumes. And in his writing called Jewish Antiquities, he described... The Shlosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage feasts, particularly Sukkot, he described what was done during his time. He was a first century Pharisee, Jewish historian, who was a writer. And he described what it was like. He said that Jews came to Jerusalem from throughout the land of Israel. And as he described it, every Jewish community in the world came to Sukkot they came to celebrate Sukkot at Jerusalem during his time from all over the world he said what they did was they gathered together in their geographical position they gathered together in a geographical location near to them they gathered together and then they set out together to Jerusalem they set out, they went together. They did that three times a year, again, during the Shlosh Regalim, our Passover time, Shavuot time, Pentecost time, and Sukkot time. So they went as a community, they gathered together at a prefigured place where they would meet. For example, if we were here in Oklahoma, we would say, well, let's meet in Tulsa. No, let's stay Oklahoma City. <laughs> let's meet and we'll go together to Jerusalem. And that's what they did. Now, remember, they just couldn't uh, get an airline ticket and fly over there or catch a Greyhound bus or Amtrak. They were committed to obeying the Lord's command about the Shlosh Regalim, particularly about Sukkot. They were committed to doing it, and they decided to do it as a community from their geographic position, which which made, uh, you know, a lot of sense for safety reasons. And, you know, they could help one another along the way. They had fellowship with each other, they were like-minded people, fellow Jews, going for the same reason, to the same place, to do the same thing. They were committed to literally, and I mean literally, they they were committed to walking together as a community to get to Jerusalem. Now, if you desire to walk with the Lord yourself, here, spiritually speaking, then you really do need to make a deeper commitment to your community and connect more to your community, your spiritual community. Hebrews chapter 10 emphasizes this in verse 23. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching what stands out to me in that verse or those verses is that it there was a community side to this there was an us instead of just a me let us in fact, that is characteristic of the book of Messianic Jews. Hebrew, you can go through the book of Messianic Jews and, and, and circle, if you write in your Bible, circle every time it says, let us, let us, let us. And there's a difference between a let us then and a let me. There's a difference. Now, a first century tip, trip to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, to fulfill Sukkot, was, as Josephus describes it, It was a spectacle. It was a spectacle to behold. There was vibrancy. There was excitement. They were also going to be challenged, and they knew it because it wasn't an easy task. If they lived far away, it wasn't an easy task. Josephus describes how the Jewish pilgrims, their, their caravans were colorful. After all, they were bringing to present before the Lord the produce of their harvest in all its different shades and all its different hues, bringing that to present before the Lord. And the best, not the least, the first and not the last, they were bringing to the Lord. And they set out most often on foot. They traveled, but also it was recorded that they went by chariot. That would be fun to watch, wouldn't it? A whole bunch of people charioting their way up to the mountains of Jerusalem. They went by donkey. There's another tie-in to Balaam, by the way. They traveled by camel, they traveled even by boat. Those that lived in the Mediterranean basin and the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, as we know, now call today the Yama Tichon, those who lived there, they came by boat, landed on the coast, and then they walked up to Jerusalem. They made Aliyah, literally they ascended up to Jerusalem. It's said that the Jews who lived in Babylon, and there were many at that time, great community in Babylon, it's recorded that it took them two weeks to arrive to Jerusalem. So that means they had to do some planning. Took them approximately two weeks to drive. A great One of the great rabbis at that, uh, that time uh, had a two-week journey that he took just to fulfill all the way from Babylon. And that was just one way. I mean, it's one thing to arrive there and to celebrate, but then you also have to think about, I have to get back. I have to return another two weeks or more. And again, although the commandment obligates the men, whole families went up. Can you imagine the joy after a trip like that? Say, from a Babylon or from a domestic, from Damascus. And that travel going up to there and the joy that they must have had when they finally saw in Jerusalem, in the distance. In fact, some modern pilgrims who go to Israel for the first time, they have something happen to them when they're, as they're going up to Jerusalem for the very first time. They have emotional feelings about it, modern believers. How much more so those in the first century and prior and after, who after a long arduous journey with lots of planning and lots of challenges, and they finally see the walls of Jerusalem. Well, we don't have to really wonder how they felt because it's recorded in Scripture in Tehillim, in Psalm 122, which is a sheer amalot, a song of ascents, it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And then there's this in verse 2, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And then there's a description of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. They go all this long distance from the great cities of the world and they come to this compacted city. We know now as David, city of David and just nearby there. They go to this smaller area and compact it together. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel. They go up to do what? To give thanks to the name of of the Lord Jerusalem in the first century at the time of Sukkot and the other two great feasts Jerusalem was a bustling place yes compact lot more than modern-day Jerusalem area wise but it was a bustling place it's described what it looked like when they arrived there finally some for the very first time when they get there what they saw what they experienced And in some ways, depending on where they came from, if they came from the desert areas to the east, when they get to Jerusalem, when they finally got to Jerusalem, they saw some some things that just captured them, captured their eyes, their emotions, their feelings, their senses. They saw garlands of plants and flowers, they saw olives of various shapes and sizes and even colors. They saw peoples from all over the Jewish world in their different forms of dress. Their different dialects, their different approach to life. They saw them. They smelled the fruits and they saw the vegetables of the harvest. And there were palm fronds. Palm fronds bedecked everything. Wherever they looked just about, there were palm fronds, palm fronds, all throughout the city. And the fragrance of various spices reminds me of the bazaar in Israel now, when you go through the old city. You go down from the Jaffa Gate, you walk straight in, and you come to the spice area, and there's all these fragrances that, in a sense, assault you, assault your senses, And they experienced that, the the fragrances, the sights, the sounds. And these pilgrims gathered together, they participated in prayer. You know what else they did? They participated together in singing and rejoicing. And they had a lot to rejoice about. Not only had God granted them harvest, but he had gotten them, them there safely and together. And by the time of Yeshua in the first century, there were extra-biblical ceremonies. In other words, ceremonies not prescribed by the Bible, that was be- they were being done in Jerusalem, such as the water ceremony and the ceremony of lights, the light ceremony during Sukkot. Josephus also, in his writings, Antiquities of the Jews, he describes some of the spiritual aspect. He describes how each day in the temple, the Kohanim, the Levitical priests, each day in the temple, you know what they would do on Sukkot? They would do what we're going to do here in just a little while. They would hold the lulav and the etrog. They would hold that. That will be explained, if you don't understand what I'm saying, be patient, we'll go through that in a bit. In their hand, as they marched around the altar, the altar of the Lord, so they marched around that temple area where sacrifices were going, and all that was happening, the priest of the Lord would do that. What a ceremony. And that whole area was adorned with freshly cut, fragrant willow branches. And as they circled, it's recorded, they recited particular things that are recorded that we know they said. They recited it particularly, the Hillel Psalms, and particularly Psalm 118. And one aspect of it they, they recited, it was very significant at this time, particularly on Yos- Hoshana Raba, the very final day. You know what it says? hoshanah Adonai, save us, Lord, save us. Friends, can you imagine their joy as they celebrated Sukkot after all they had put into it, as they presented their best before God, including themselves. Even though they were tired after a long journey, even though many of them had to traverse rivers and get through robbers and other things, and had challenges and in some cases setbacks, nevertheless, As they celebrated Sukkot, they sensed renewal in a unique way, a renewal and a thankfulness unto God. Thank you, Lord, for making me as I am. Thank you, Lord, for calling me to be the person that I'm called to be, they proclaimed. Thank you, Lord, for your help and your provision. Thank you, Lord, for your chen chesed rahabim, for your mercy and your grace. I don't know about you, but it sure seems to me we can still offer that kind of thanksgiving to God. Doesn't have to be only at Sukkot. We can thank him for his provision. We can thank him for helping us. We can thank him for his mercy. We can thank him for his grace. And all this becomes possible because of what Yeshua did for you. That Messiah laid down his life for you. He gave you access to the very Holy of Holies through his holy blood, his shed blood, that was shed on your behalf and i know when i look at real life as you look at real life sometimes there are some super challenges not just challenges super challenges difficulties it seems like the apostles even knew about that second corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 hints at it, it says therefore we do not lose heart Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, a momentary light affliction, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And here's the key. Verse 18 While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Actually, the one who is not seen, Yeshua the Messiah. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They rejoice greatly. And I want to close by sharing with you several other things that Yeshua said about rejoicing. For example, in Luke chapter 10... Verse 20, after his Talmudim, his disciples had returned from a particularly, as we would say in modern terminology, a particularly powerful time of ministry. And he had sent them out it's in his behalf, in his name. And they came back and they, were, they marveled at uh, the authority that had been given to them. And Yeshua said to them so bluntly, so tersely, but so truly, he said, Luke ten twenty, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. You know what he said? But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Is your name written in heaven tonight? Is your name written in heaven? If so, you have much to rejoice about here this evening, far more than Sukkot, as wonderful and as joyous as Sukkot is. But if your name's written in heaven, if you've received Yeshua, Jesus, as your personal Lord and Savior, you have great room for rejoicing. But that's not all he said about rejoicing. In fact, he spoke more often about rejoicing than we might imagine. Just in the, in the, the of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verse 7, he said this, it's recorded him saying, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And as I was preparing this message, I reflected back many years ago, and I had joy when Yeshua apprehended my life. And I thought, wow, I actually caused the angels to rejoice. <laughs> and if you're a believer here tonight, and you're a real believer, not just a nominal one, you made those angels rejoice. <laughs> there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. At least they think they need no repentance. That's not all he said, though, about rejoicing. The very next verse, Luke 15, beginning with verse 8, Yeshua uses a woman as an example. He uses a woman as a powerful example to his hearers. He says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And let me ask you, have any of you ever missed something in your house and you couldn't find it? I can just imagine those of, you, those of you with your cell phones, with the light on your cell phone, looking under everything, trying to find it. In a parallel way, Yeshua said, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, when she has found it, <laughs> and they didn't have telephones back then, and when she, when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Yeshua says this, verse 10 Luke 15, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Have you repented? Are you repenting? Please do. Sukkot is a time of rejoicing, but it doesn't negate the need to repent if repentance is necessary in our lives. Well, in the first century, to conclude, In the first century, as Josephus and other sources uh, tell us, they cried out as they waved their palm fronds in Jerusalem. They cried out, Hoshiana donai, save us, O Lord. They cried out. Can you imagine multitudes of thousands and thousands of Jewish people crying out, save us, O Lord, save us, O Lord. I think today, those who are redeemed by the Lord, those of you who know Yeshua as your Lord and Savior, you can proclaim, you are my King, O Lord. You are my Savior. Is he your Savior tonight on this Sukkot? You are my Savior. Or maybe as we're saying that, we can declare what Zechariah did in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse nine. Vehaya as we say during the end of the elenu prayer vehaya the lord shall be king over all the earth sukkot is truly a time of rejoicing it's a time of rejoicing it's also a time it's a time to recognize all the blessings God has given to us. It's a time to return to Him. If you're astray from Him in your life, return to the Lord. Turn to Him. If you're looking to the Lord for guidance in your life, trust Him, believe Him, yield to Him. Let Him be truly the King over your life, King Yeshua to reign. And as we rejoice, we also realize that as we have during these whole High Holy Days, we have continually talked about and continually referenced the kingship of our God, Yeshua is King.
0: You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10:40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place. North of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpina.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.